come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Let's stand as we open God's Word together and look at verses 6 through 15 in Colossians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writing this letter says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. For in him the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in circumcision of the Messiah. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by, I love this, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. By him. Father, we see in these admonitions that Jesus is what we sang about a moment ago the way, the truth, the life, and there's no other way. No one has ever, nor could they have ever, died to provide remission of sin for people who by faith would follow. Only Jesus. And we thank you for that. Lord, as we do remember those who fought for our freedoms, we remember the only one who could make us spiritually free and free from the debt of sin forever. That's Jesus. Lord, help us to have your Holy Spirit's understanding, guiding us into understanding of this text. Help us to know how to stand for what we believe and not by the lies of the enemy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I remember my first kids camp quite vividly because as a 10-year-old, and some of you have heard my testimony, I went to a kids camp, Hard Labor Creek State Park there in Rutledge, Georgia, Randy's hometown, right? And uh, I was at a kids camp down there, and that last night of camp, a Friday night there in an outdoor chapel in that Georgia red clay, I knelt down in the best way I knew how. I prayed to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Now, in those days, you didn't have to uh, get us away from cell phones and all the other distractions of life, right? We didn't have too many of those. But you did have the influence of friends and peer pressure and everything else. And so uh, to, to get me away and under the word for a week at camp was absolutely life changing. Why do we believe it's important? And in a week, I'll be talking about why we believe in investing and in reaching the next generation. Why do we think that's so important? Because there's no other way a person can come to a 
uh, saving knowledge of God other than through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to heaven other than through Jesus Christ. We call it the exclusivity of the gospel, but the fact that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again on the third day is our only hope. All other roads lead to destruction in hell, and only Jesus can offer us salvation and eternal life in a place called heaven and an abundant life here on this planet as well. The church at Colossae that Paul was writing to had uh, been influenced, many of the Colossians in that area had been influenced in what we would call an early form of Gnosticism from the, 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 the Greek Gnosis they're having to do with uh, kind of a a religion of knowledge and wisdom, if you will. There were certain levels of knowledge that were available to people, uh, usually people who were considered kind of elite, right, because they had been uh, singled out to be enlightened with this knowledge, Christ being uh, this this form of Gnosticism that influenced the church. Christ was kind of considered an emissary. He He was less than divine, but yet he brought a unique knowledge about God, and you could grow in that knowledge according to these heretics that were influencing the church, uh, so that that certain enlightened few might could advance in their degrees of salvation and knowledge and wisdom, if you will. Now, that wasn't the only heresy influencing the first century church, but it was especially attractive to those in the Greek culture because of their love for philosophy. And we see that word in the text as well. Paul also writing to Titus, who was on the island of Crete, would later say, hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught to encourage others with sound doctrine. And he said, also, not only do you want to encourage them with sound doctrine, you want to be able to refute those who oppose it. And so as believers from the very beginning, in the first century, as they were receiving the word of God, they were told, you need to know your stuff. You need to know who God is, and you need to know what the gospel is, but you also need to know what it's not, and you need to be able to recognize heresy. You need to be able to recognize error and the lies of Satan when he would come in and try to lead people astray and down other roads that lead to destruction. Against the Judaizers, those who would try to bring kind of a, a, a works or an, an Old Testament keeping of the law and add that to the gospel for salvation, Paul would write the Galatian church in Galatians 1.8 and say this, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel other than what we've preached, let him be accursed. Doesn't sound like the Bible teaches that Jesus was one way among many, does it? And then in this passage, what we just read, we find a couple of biblical admonitions that I believe all of the rest of Scripture kind of supports here that reinforce the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the gospel is indeed exclusive and Jesus is indeed the only way and the only hope for salvation. So I want us to see those two admonitions. And if those admonitions hold true, then it also must hold true that Jesus is the only way. That the gospel is the only hope in this world. 
And the first admonition is this. We see the importance of receiving Christ as Lord and growing in him. That seems so basic, doesn't it? Well, did you ever think about this? If Jesus Christ is not the only way, if receiving him as Lord and growing in him is not of utmost importance, then the church has no reason to even exist whatsoever. If that's not something that we're to be about, receiving Christ as Lord and growing in him, then we don't even need to be here this morning if we think there are other ways. That's our entire mission. That's, that's our entire purpose as a church. And so in, in verse 6, it begins with the word therefore. And whenever, you guys know this, we're all hermeneutic students this morning, right? Whenever you see the word therefore, you should always see what it's therefore, there for, right? And so in, in some translations, it says so then, but that word so then or therefore is going back to these first five introductory verses in this passage where he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those in Laodicea, for all who have not seen me in person. I want their ears to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of uh, assured understanding. You might underline that in your Bible, assured understanding. You are certain of what you have heard and understood and believed. And have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ, in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. You don't have to go trying to find some new philosophy. Listen, I love to hear preaching that tells me something I didn't know when it comes from that which has always been in the word of God, I just haven't discovered it yet. But some people get so hungry for a new nugget of truth. They're, they're so hungry for, Pastor, tell me something I haven't heard before, that they become vulnerable to heresies. And if it wasn't true in the first century, church, it's not true today. And so we're not to go digging for wisdom elsewhere. It's all in Christ. It's in the gospel. He says, I'm saying this. Why? Verse 4. So that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. And they're out there. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the strength of your faith in Christ. Listen, something I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, as I rejoiced seeing these 12 high school graduates stand before us last Sunday, and I saw all the potential in the world, and I'm like, man, these young people can go out and make a difference in the world. I know that as soon as they hit the college classroom or wherever they take their next step for a career in life, they're going to be surrounded with persuasive arguments to say, that stuff you learned in church isn't true. You, you grew up hearing that, don't believe it, don't buy it. And if we're not doing what we're called to do as a church, to establish people in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only saying, hey, listen, I was raised this way, so you're going to be raised this way, but in addition, say, let me explain to you why we believe this and why we can know for certain, why we can have assurance that it's true, then they can fall into subjecting themselves to these clever arguments. Notice when he starts talking about this, he's trying to persuade them to have this passion for God, this love for each other, sincere worship, all of that creating an environment for doctrinal truth. 
Now, church, I am all about us engaging the culture in the next generation. I've said it many times, and we'll talk about this next Sunday. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But if we don't design our ministries to reach a new generation, then the church is a generation away from being extinct. Now, I know the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, but a church that's not committed to what Christ is committed to, especially reaching a new generation with the gospel, can be shutting its doors in a matter of moments. And so I'm all about engaging the culture and, and, and our worship and everything else creates the environment for that. But in that environment, so many churches have said, we know how now to build a crowd, but they're not building a church because they're not making the disciples. They're not teaching the word of God. They're not teaching the truths of scripture and helping them to stand on that truth and know how to defend that in the various venues of life. So in those cases, you, don't, you may have a large church, but you really just have a large crowd. You haven't built disciples. And so all of the things that we do around here, we talk about things like community. It's important. And we talk about uh, enthusiastic worship and celebration. That's important. All of that is to create an environment where Christ is exalted, where people are loved, and that fertile soil then becomes the ground for sound doctrine to go forth and to be embraced. And so what does he say? As you receive, to verse 6. The word receive there has to do with the idea of action. It's not something that was forced on you. It was a choice that you made. I do believe we have a choice. I do not believe that we work or earn our salvation, for you're saved by grace through faith. Last Sunday night, as uh, my son Kent was talking to the men, I told him I really appreciated his illustration uh, of what that was like. He says it's if... God made it. God created this thing called salvation. He put it together. He packaged it. He delivered it to your doorstep, and he said, all you have to do is sign for it. And so we still have a choice. Are we going to receive it? This is our action here in receiving. It's not something God forces on you. He says, so as you have received him, now you are to walk in him. Verse 7, he talks about being rooted or established, Get, getting your roots deep, established, availing yourself to solid teaching, right? Not to be like the seed that Jesus described that fell along the path that was eaten up by the birds or, or, or fell upon the rocks, couldn't get its roots deep, or that was among the thorns and choked down. But no, you get your roots deep in the Word of God. Through your daily time in his word, that thing we call a quiet time, where you get into the Bible yourself, you read it for yourself, and you feed yourself on a daily basis. Many of us need to learn how to journal, and we want to do more to help you with that in these days ahead. But to write down what God is teaching you and how it applies to your life, and praying and asking him to empower you to live out what you're learning. Being in a small group here at Trinity, we call them life groups or men's or women's Bible studies. There are all kinds of opportunities for you to be engaged in a small group where you're fellowshipping around the Bible and learning what God says and sharing and encouraging one another. And then in worship, where we know the Bible is going to be preached and taught with conviction. Rooted, he says, established in these things. Verses 9 through 15 that I read a moment ago, and let's look at those again because it tells us what only Christ has done for us, and that's why we need to be rooted and established. We see that it's in him, 
the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily, where the Gnostics were saying Jesus wasn't really fully God, the Bible is teaching us, oh, yes, he is, and all that you need to know if God is found in him. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. Because why? When the spirit of Christ came to live in you, Christ came to live in you. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not done with hands. It's not the physical circumcision of Moses, but a spiritual circumcision. Wow, God changes the heart. He changes us from the inside out, not the outside in. Verse 12, we were buried with him in baptism, also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That's why we make a big deal about baptism around here because it celebrates when a person comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We celebrate that through water baptism. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch saying to Philip, why can't I be baptized? He says, well, as long as you believe. And so when someone comes of that age where they can understand that they are a sinner, and I try to make it no more complicated than the Bible makes it here, when they can understand that they are a sinner, have remorse for sins, and believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and rose again from the dead, and they put their faith and trust in what God did on the cross for their forgiveness, then they are to follow him, first step of obedience for the believer in believer's baptism, to picture outwardly an inward reality that they were buried with him in baptism and raised to walk, and that's why we bury them, right? Because they were buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. And so that becomes a sermon for every new believer to preach to friends and family, to the church and everybody else, as I have put my faith and trust in the one who died and rose again for me. And so when they can articulate that, Some of them might become teenagers and say, I understand certain abstracts that I didn't understand as a child, and I'm just not sure. And and listen, I'm not just, I'm not for saying every time somebody has an emotional experience, you need to rebaptize and rebaptize, rebaptize. But I do believe in celebrating what they believe God's doing in their life. And so if they're six or 16 or 66, and they believe that's when they grasp it and understood it, celebrate with them in baptism. And and so he says, you're buried with him. You're raised with him. And when you were dead in trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him. He forgave all of our trespasses. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and forgive us of all unrighteousness. Only Jesus can offer that because only Jesus died for the sins of the world. And then it says he erased the certificate of debt, what we owed God because of our sin, with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and he has taken it out of the way by doing what? Nailing it to the cross. How did he nail it to the cross? It's because only Jesus, no other religious leader who ever walked the face of this earth, only Jesus Christ became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him And so literally, sin was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross because he became our lamb, our substitute, dying in our place on a cross. We can't say that all other religions lead to the same place without insulting the one who died on the cross for our sins. It is slanderous to say, yes, Jesus died for my sin and he was the only one that could die for my sin, But that's only one way among many that can get you to heaven. It's ludicrous to think that he would go that distance 
if there were another way. Listen to these verses that you're familiar with this morning. John 14, 6, we sang it earlier. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Matthew 26, 39, Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What was Jesus saying? God, if there is any other way for people to be saved, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, because there is no other way than the I pay for the sins of the world with my life on the cross. Not my will, your will be done. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. John three thirty six, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human. The King James says, the man, Christ Jesus. One mediator. Once we breathe our last on this earth, our parents can't pray us out of purgatory. When we breathe our last, our eternity is sealed. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Listen, I like options in life. We like to have the ability to choose, right? We like like to have choices. But the gospel itself, and, and, and the message of the church, is not a booth at a career fair. Anybody remember going to those, a career fair, job fair at school or something like that where you kind of go, well, I think I'd kind of like to do this. Well, this kind of looks appealing. This kind of fits me. Maybe I can look into this. And then you, after your first year of college, you change majors anyway. So that really, well, let me try this out for it. Let me try. And, and, and then some of you, listen, some of you have been working the same job for 30, 40, 50 years and it just never changed. And that's great. That's wonderful if you love it. And then others, you're kind of like, man, I don't know, every two years I'm just ready for something different. I just need a different place, need to try something different. I like options. I want to I want to experiment. I want to try new things. But listen, the gospel among other religions is not that way. We can't say, well, this one kind of fits me and that one kind of fits you. And what might be right for me may not be right for you. And and it, listen, Jesus claims he, he doesn't give us that option. He claims to be the only way. And that's why we believe in the exclusivity of the gospel. That Jesus isn't one way among many. But he is the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Now, that was the admonition. The second admonition I want us to see here this morning is the importance of recognizing counterfeits as lies and refuting them. See, not only do we need to receive Christ, that's important, and we need to grow in him, but we need to recognize counterfeits and say, that's not Christ. Now, a big part of that goes back to the first point. We need to know Jesus, and we need to grow in him. Because if I'm knowing him like I should be knowing him, am I growing in him like I should be growing in him, I'm going to be much quicker to recognize a counterfeit. Anyone who's ever served at a, uh, a, a, worked at a cash register or served at a, a, at a bank or something like that as a bank teller, you might know that 
the best way to recognize a counterfeit is to be real familiar with the real thing. There are certain distinguishing marks of the real $100 bill and the real $20 bill, right? And so there's the test of that which is real. You have to know the real thing, and then you recognize the counterfeit. And you might not know where the counterfeit came from, but you know it's not the real thing. And so when you truly know Jesus and you're grounded in his word and, and say, listen, you'll watch, you'll hear some preachers or hear some representing other religions and you'll say, that just doesn't sound right. And you're right. The Holy Spirit and the word of God's t- telling you this is a counterfeit. So you've got to start by knowing the real thing. But then we've got to be able to refute the counterfeits. This is where most, listen, I'm kind of, in between two generations here, but this is where most baby boomers dropped the ball in the church a generation ago. And while many held on to tradition, many times their kids and their grandkids did not hold to the same traditions because when they had the why questions that we're tackling throughout this summer, the answer was, well, because you weren't raised that way. Well, listen, sometimes we can be raised wrong. And so if a generation says, well, that's not a strong enough argument, we need to be able to show them what the Word of God says and why it says it. And so it starts with receiving Jesus and growing in Him. But then according to verse 8, let's go back to verse, let's start with verse 8 and then we'll go back to verse 4. In verse 8, he says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on eternal, or excuse me, elemental forces of the world and not based on Christ. He had said in verse 4 to set this up, I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. So don't let these persuasive arguments come in and get hold of your hearts and take you captive. It kind of suggests that there's, there's more to it here. There's, a, there's an empty philosophy, he says. The word philosophy, it's, it's right out of the Greek. Philos means love. Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. And so those who are in love and affectionate and passionate about wisdom, man, I just, I just want to feel smart. I want to think I'm intelligent. And that describes what's going on in most state universities today. Evangelist Vody Bauckham will say that's one thing that messes more people up than anything else is one course of philosophy. <laughs> so if you take two, you might be all right. If you don't take any, you'll get by. But if you take one, it'll mess you up. Philosophy, this love for wisdom, being exposed to it, thinking you know more than you do sometimes, the art of obtaining knowledge and then he uses the phrase empty deceptions, or it's just kind of pointing out that, it, that it's, it's chock full of lies. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10 kind of suggests that there were people who were vulnerable to deceptions and lies because they loved talking philosophy more than they loved knowing the truth. In other words, we'd rather kind of talk about how all value systems are kind of equal and, and balanced at war with each other rather than saying there is right and there is wrong and you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
He goes on here in verse 8 to talk about they come from human traditions, worldly elements, right? It's, it's man-made, and every human perspective can be summarized in about five worldviews. I want to share those in closing this morning. Uh, just summarize about five worldviews and, and where we fit into that because as Christians, as parents, as grandparents, we need to be able to explain to those that we love and want to see them grow. Because some of you are saying to yourself this morning, Pastor Robbie, you don't have to worry about me. I believe in the exclusivity gospel. Pastor Robbie, don't worry about me. I believe Jesus is the only way. Why are you trying so hard to persuade me? Listen, I'm not just trying to persuade those of you who are here this morning to believe Jesus is the only way. That's not why I'm preaching this message. I think most of you are on my team with this, right? I'm trying to preach this to persuade you and equip you to persuade others. A generation who's not established in their faith yet. So what are those five worldviews real quickly? Atheism says that this is a world without a God. It ultimately leads to what we would call humanism or the worship of man or pragmatism where it says, hey, whatever works for you or hedonism, whichever says, if it feels good, do it. But there are no eternal consequences because there's nothing beyond this life. Many who are hedonistic are angry at God and claim that there isn't a God. We took God out of schools. We begin to see our nation crumble. Problems probably started in the home first. The bigger problem is not that there's professing atheists in our schools. The bigger problem is that there's not practicing Christians in our homes. We become pragmatically atheists by not being grounded in the Word. Pantheism is another worldview. The, the world is one with God. All is God and God is all. You talk about Eastern religions. You talk about people who will drive down the road. And listen, one of the largest religions in the world, Hinduism, where they see a cow eating garbage out of a dumpster and say, that's God. And I wanted to shout on the streets of India when I went, I don't know about you, but my God doesn't eat garbage out of a dumpster. But so many people buy into some form of Eastern religion, moral relativism. It's kind of funny. It never works on the highways. You know, you know, we assume that the Department of Transportation, when they say, I gave this illustration when I was talking about the Bible, we assume that the authors meant something, that a sign means what it says, God's Word means what it says. Deism is another worldview. It's closer to the truth. It says God is the design first cause. You've heard the argument, the divine watchmaker theory, that if you see a watch... The creator of that watch may be nowhere around, but somebody had to create it because it has intelligent design. And I'm all for teaching intelligent design, but let's don't stop there and think that God backed off somewhere. Finite Godism, polytheism, that there are many gods, little g, mythology, which was real to the Greeks and the Romans. It's not quite the Hindu pantheistic view, but it's more like these little gods are superheroes who are going to come in and save the day. Today, we recognize superheroes as fantasy. Some of this crowd that's caught up in the Avengers today is like, man, this stuff is real. No, I'm just kidding. We're not polytheistic, are we? We don't believe in finite gods except for our cell phones, 
our favorite sports, our favorite athletes, our favorite artists, singers, actors. Maybe we are guilty of some polytheism and having some false gods. Even making a boyfriend or girlfriend, a parent, a child, more important than Jesus in your life can be idolatry. And then we come, there's only one, everything kind of fits into all of those. There there is a pantheism, there is panentheism, kind of the Western version of it, that God is in everything, and everything is in God. So we can take our crystals up to the top of a mountain and meditate and feel like we're one with the universe and God all at the same time. And then there's the theistic, that there is a God who transcends all of this. Three major religions. Three major world religions are theistic in nature. One is Islam. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his name is their mantra. Excuse me, Muhammad is his prophet, right? Only prophet. And everything that he said trumps what Jesus said. Jesus was a good man, but he really hid out when they crucified somebody else and then came back on the scene and tried to say that he rose again when he really didn't, according to Islam. By the way, the Quran was changed so many times the next couple of hundred years after Muhammad died that we don't really know what all he wrote in it when he supposedly flew on some horse with wings up to receive it from the heavens. It's all ludicrous. He, he did all this after he got mad because the Jews wouldn't follow him into battle when he wanted them to. And so feeling a little put out, he said, well, I'll just create my own religion and get people to do what I want them to do. And it became a religion of violence, religion of warfare, five pillars of works that make a lot of people feel good if they're in even American prisons because they feel like there's something to do. That's why it's so important for the Gideons to come in and bring the word of God and show them that what Islam is teaching is a lie. The other two theistic religions, once we see how self-refuting Islam is, it's Judaism, which embraces the same Old Testament we do. They just don't call it the Old Testament, but it is the Torah. It is the Word of God. It's just incomplete because they didn't recognize, as John 1.11 says, he came into his own, but his own received him not. It's just incomplete. That's why we often talk of a Jew who has put his faith and trust in Jesus as a completed Jew, right? The difference between Judaism and Christianity is ultimately what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? And so Christianity, the only thing left that really makes any sense whatsoever, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Can you refute all of those other religions and explain why Jesus stands superior to all of them? You have to receive Christ and grow in him. You have to refute these other religions. And you have to be vigilant and consistently doing that. I pray that as a church, we'll commit to that recommit ourselves today. Would you bow your heads with me? Maybe every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe somebody here is trying.